0: Peter was a fisherman. That was his expertise. He knew how to do it, he thought, better than anyone else. In fact, when Jesus told him to launch out into the Sea of Galilee, uh, Peter responded by saying, Lord, we have fished all night and caught nothing. I'm the expert. And this lake just doesn't have it right now. He was a fisherman. Jesus came to this fisherman. he along with a few others and said, I will make you fishers of men. Not just fishermen, but fishers of men. You're going to catch human beings from now on. In other words, I'm going to make you evangelists to carry the greatest message to the world. Well, here again we see Peter in the book of Acts being a fisher of men. This once impetuous, even timid, at some parts, individual, filled with the Holy Spirit now sharing the Gospel in a beautiful way. You know, we often speak about open doors. It's a a Christian term that we use. We say, you know, if God opens a door, I'll go through it. Which means if we have an opportunity and we feel God wants us to do it, we'll walk through the door and we'll be obedient. So we talk about open doors. And the Scripture speaks about open doors always in terms of evangelism. As an opportunity to share the gospel. Where God would open up an avenue that we could walk through and people would be receptive Or even if they weren't receptive, it would be an open forum for them to at least listen to the message of the gospel. And even Peter himself knew when there was an open door, and there is an open door in this chapter with the lame man who was healed. Now I bet you that if we could swap stories tonight, all of you would be able to share some experience where you've seen God open a door. Sometimes it have been rather obvious where someone has come to you or you've been in the presence of someone, you pick someone up on the road hitchhiking or you've been in a mall and somebody's talked to you, asked you a question, you see an open door. I've shared a few of them that I've had with you. How one time I was sitting on the beach under, on top of a lifeguard stand and somebody's eating Cheetos underneath a lifeguard stand at one in the morning and I got to share the gospel with them. God opened a door and he came to know the Lord. I've been on airplanes before, traveling to different places, and God would place, I believe, somebody next to me that needed to hear a message. I've been in parts of the world where people come and God just puts the timing together. And I'm in a position where I have people come up to me literally by the week who will ask this question, what must I do to be saved? I would like to know Jesus. What do I need to do? Now, talk about an open door. Even Peter, the blundering fisherman, knew that this, in a sense, was a setup. That God was getting a crowd together. A group of interested, spiritually needy people. And God was going to use the healing of the lame man to do more than just heal him. But it would be a forum for Peter to be able to share with thousands of people who have never yet heard the gospel as they're going to hear it today. It seems there is always a ripple effect. When God does a work. In other words, God gets mileage out of His work. He healed the man who was lame from birth. Now, it's obvious that we see God has a concern for people who are physically impaired. And He wants to heal people. It's obvious that there's the love of God demonstrated in that act. But that was not the be-all, end-all of that man who was at the gate beautiful. God gets mileage out of His miracles. You see, that man was lame from birth at a gate that Jesus walked by several times while He was in Jerusalem. Yet Jesus never healed him. And it seems as though God was saving this miracle for later. He didn't want to heal him years before when Jesus walked the same streets. He was saving this miracle for the right opportunity when the early church could use this as a forum to touch a deeper need. So it's a rippling effect. The rippling effect goes farther than we think, because it is this miracle that gets a crowd. The crowd responds to the gospel. But in the crowd are enemies, and the enemies want to put the apostles out of Jerusalem. And because of this miracle, persecution comes upon the church. And the Sadducees eventually succeed in kicking the early church out of Jerusalem. And the rippling effect goes farther out because that group of people takes the gospel then from Jerusalem out into Judea where they've been banished to, out to Antioch and to the uttermost parts of the earth till eventually you and I receive the gospel on this continent from Jerusalem. There was quite a rippling effect that takes place And in a sense, it all centers around this miracle. That's encouraging to me because a lot of times I will ask God to do something, be pretty convinced that it's His will, and He won't do it. Or He'll say, not now. Wait. I love when God answers my prayers, yes. Makes it nice and easy that way. Lord, please do this. Yes. Good job. All right. Lord, please do this. No. I don't like it, but I can handle it. A lot better than if he says, maybe later. Wait a while. It could be that this lame man, knowing that Jesus walked by that gate day after day, was thinking, I heard about this man. I heard that he can heal. Why doesn't he heal me? only to see that later on a grander plan was unfolded to his life. You know, the Bible says that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. Every single step is directed by God as you yield your life to Him. But I'd like to add something that the Scripture also shares with us, not quite in this way, but the principle is there, that not only the steps of a righteous man are ordered or directed by the Lord, but the stops of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. There are times when God says no or wait because He has a better plan in store and we in our limited capability can't see it. So God will say no or wait. And later on, a better plan will be unfolded and you and I look back, don't we, a lot of the times and we say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't answer my prayer yes. Even though I thought you should have. You had a grander plan. And we see that unfolding here. Back in verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us? as though by our own power and godliness we made this man walk. The God of Abraham and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. I call this a hot potato pass. Because receiving praise as a servant of God, you should look at it like holding a hot potato. If you hold on to it too long, you'll burn your hands. And as soon as the hot potato of praise and adulation was passed over to Peter, he went through it right back up to God. He knew he couldn't handle it. He wasn't about to grab on to that kind of praise and glory for very long. So as the people said, wow, Peter said, now wait a minute. Don't look at us as though we're holy or that we accomplished any great thing. God did it the God of your fathers, the God of your heritage, He did what He promised to do. He answered the prayer of Jesus. Jesus said, Glorify the Son. In John chapter 17. And Peter is saying that God has answered that prayer. And so he passes on the praise back to the Lord. He refused to receive any glory. It's because pedestals can destroy people. More people have been destroyed by elevation than by humiliation. It seems that some people can't handle authority and power. And any time they get elevated, it ruins them. And more servants of God have been ruined by having power without accountability. Power that's not under check. Or being elevated too high too quickly. They've been ruined. A pedestal can ruin anybody. Billy Graham said, there are three things that... Hinder every servant of God. Three great temptations that every servant of God must watch out for. The first is sex. Satan will come along to a servant of God and hammer sexual temptation. The second is money. Not being content. Using the ministry to be greedy for gain. And the third one is power. The inability to handle the elevation. Wanting absolute control, those three things can ruin a person. You remember King Saul? King Saul in the Old Testament started out humble. Uh, He was sort of abasing himself, saying, "I, who am I to be able to govern these people? Yet later on, he, in his elevation, became prideful. Nebuchadnezzar, although he was a Gentile king, got to a place where he was so isolated, had so much power, that one day he's cruising out on his balcony of his fancy condominium there in Babylon. And he looks over all of the great monuments and gardens that he had built there. And he looked over and he said, look at Babylon, this fabulous city which I have built. And he became lifted up with pride. And as you remember the story, God had to abase him. God had to bring them down to the level of an animal, actually. In the book of Corinthians, Paul tells us, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything you have... Everything that God has done in or through your life, you cannot take any kind of credit for. You can never boast for it. You can never say, well, because I'm a great person of prayer or faith, or I've been more faithful, I'm in the Word more. It's because I'm a special person and God knew it all along, therefore He chose me. Everything you have or any great work that God has done through you, remember, God did it through you. And often God did it in spite of you, not because of you. Remember that scripture that we herald from this podium quite often. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. So every time you're mightily used by God, just remember that. Yeah, but God spoke through me. Yeah, but read the Old Testament. God spoke through Balaam's donkey too. So it's no big deal. It just gives more glory to God that God in His power could use us for any great or small thing. And all the glory goes back to God. In the New Testament, you remember, there was a situation that developed that was dangerous among Christians. And that is, they started to put certain individuals up on pedestals as being more important. The Christian celebrity thing was already developing back then. One group would say, I'm of Paul. Another group said, oh, I'm of Apollos. Now, Apollos, that golden-tongued Alexandrian who can put it just so succinctly. Others said, I'm of Peter, Cephas, that down-to-earth country preacher. And they were putting these people up on pedestals. And Paul had to come along and say, Um, don't want to burst your bubble, but here goes. You're all carnal. Because you put certain celebrities up on a pedestal. And don't you know that elevating someone can hinder that person, can hinder the work of God? We're all one in Christ. And not one servant is higher or better than anyone else. And Peter knew that. That's why he passes the potato. He says, don't look at me. God has done it. Now, immediately after explaining that to them, there's a shift that takes place in his message. He focuses now not on the healing that has taken place. But you notice there's a shift in his words and he now focuses on the healer. Here's a man who's walking, who's been lame from birth, and all the people are thinking, look at this guy, he's walking. And Peter uses this to preach the gospel. He takes their attention off the miracle and onto the miracle worker. And he starts explaining about sin and righteousness and salvation. And he said in verse 14, Or verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled." A helpful hint when you are sharing the Gospel with anyone. If God opens a door, an opportunity for you to verbally share your faith in Jesus Christ, that is to keep the conversation on target. Don't let it waver off the topic of Jesus and that other person's relationship to Him. Take the focus of attention off yourself or off of any other topic and squarely center it on the person and the work of Jesus and that person's relationship. Now, the other person may try to talk his way around the subject and evade the issue and get you to think of something entirely different. You might tell him about Jesus and he'll want to talk about churches. You'll talk about his relationship with God and he'll say, what about hypocrisy that's in the church? Keep bringing them back to the center. Jesus did that. On your own, not now, but on your own, go back sometime and read the fourth chapter of John. And notice how Jesus takes this woman who's really snippety and, and just, you know, flippant about her answers and brings her right back on target. You need this living water. You're thirsty. And it gets real close and even when she changes the subject about the worship of God and she starts Kind of rabbit tailing the conversation out. Jesus brings it back to her relationship with God and keeps it right back on target. I was skiing a couple weeks ago. Yes, even pastors do ski. It was on a Monday, my day off, and I was up here at Sandia and I'm skiing. I'm in line and I'm standing next to this neat guy and he turns to me and goes, Hey, Skip, how you doing? I said, fine. I don't know your name. He said, Oh, I come to your church. I think it's really neat. Great time, like listening to the music, like hearing you talk, you know, chit-chat. So we get on the chair together. As we're going up, he tells me a little bit about himself. And then I said, well, you know, you said that you like to come to church. Are you a Christian? And it was an uncomfortable question for him. Well, and he talked around and said, no, what do you mean by that? And That's a giveaway always. <laughs> I said, well, look at it this way. Jesus said you must be born again. You have to believe in Him, commit your life to Him. He needs to be the center of your life. Are you one of those? He said, no. And so we started talking and he said, you know, I don't like to talk publicly about my relationship with God. I don't like to discuss those things. I said, why? And what's wrong? He goes, well, I have some friends who are telling me the same things and they're telling me I'm wrong and that I'm in sin. and I said, you know what? You have the right to be wrong if you want to. It's your choice. You are wrong. But if you if you are desiring to be wrong, you have that right. You're an American. I don't have the right to force anything down your throat. But the reason that these people want to talk to you about that is because they're concerned for your eternal soul. It's not that they want a brownie point on their Bible for telling you about Jesus. They want to see you in heaven with them. It's a good motivation. But it got real squirmy when it came to a real, live, personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, he talked talk about church. He'd talk about religion. But you get right on the target. And there's a little bit of wincing that goes on. And Peter brought him right to the target. And notice that Peter mentions the guilt that they had for their own sins. Now look back again in verse 13 and notice the way he puts this. It says, His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we Our witnesses. Now he got right to the point that they all had sin in their life personally. And he said, Jesus died on the cross. You were the ones that delivered Him up. You killed the Prince of Life. You know, he didn't beat around the bush, did he? He shared with them plainly, and I'm sure in a loving tone, yet in a firm tone, that they had guilt because of their sin. Eventually, this will bring them to a place of conviction, which is always an important facet when you want to evangelize a person. Conviction must always precede conversion. If a person does not recognize that he is a sinner, he's not going to see his need for a Savior. A person must realize, I am guilty before God. All have sinned, and I'm part of that group, all. I'm one of them. I am a sinner, and only sinners need a Savior. I don't just have hang-ups. I just don't blow it every now and then. I am a sinner. And unless a person comes to that point, that person will never say, I need a Savior, because saviors are for sinners. And so Peter shows them that all of them had guilt because of their sin. And so they came to a place where they had awareness of their need. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, as He opened up, Blessed are the what? What's the first thing He said? Poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now I can't think of another statement that shows better the difference of value system between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. The world would never say blessed are the poor in spirit. The world would say, blessed are the self-assured, the self-confident, the person who stands on his own two feet, the one who has a high impression of himself, can carry himself among others, the strong. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. I have with me a couple quotes, and I would just like you to discern on your own. You don't even have to vote out loud or say, yes, I agree with it. Just listen to these quotes. And in your own mind, put a little check mark by the ones you agree with. First one is from Shirley MacLaine. Now, you probably already have the check mark up there, right? But be fair. She said, and it won't surprise you. The most pleasurable journey that you take is through yourself. The only sustaining love involvement is with yourself. When you look back on your life and try to figure out where you've been, where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all of that closely, what you really find out is that the only person you really go to bed with is yourself. The only thing you have is working to the consummation of your own identity. And that's what I've been trying to do all my life. Of course, we know that too. Another one is perhaps from someone that you wouldn't expect because he says he's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's from Southern California, Robert Schuler. He said, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ or under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to the human personality and hence counterproductive to evangelism than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Another quote is by Andrew Murray, an old saint in the faith who wrote a book called Absolute Surrender, and he said, Self is our greatest curse. But praise God, Christ came to redeem us from self. And that is why you have the reason why many people pray for the power of the Holy Ghost and they get something but very little. Because they prayed for power for work, power for blessing, but they've not prayed for power for full deliverance from self. A.W. Tozer in one of his many great books said, The Christian's interests have shifted from himself to Christ. What he is or is not no longer concerns him. Christ is now where the man's ego was formerly. In other words, Man is not on the throne. Yourself is not on the throne. You're not trying to please yourself, but Jesus. The man is now Christ-centered instead of self-centered, and he forgets himself in his delighted preoccupation with Christ. You see, the fact of the matter is, we live in an opposite kingdom. We call it an upside-down kingdom. You could take a list of values of this world And a list of values of the kingdom of God and they would be almost directly opposed to one another. In fact, often the things that the world esteems, Jesus himself said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. It's almost a direct antithesis, the values. Personal success and money is a high priority in this world system. It's not high on the list of God. Repentance, freedom from sin, godliness, those take higher precedence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the very things so often that the world despises are the things that Christ exalts. I took a job one time at a hospital in Westminster, California. And uh, I went in, filled out my resume. And they said the old, um, don't call us, we'll call you. We have a lot of applications, we'll look through them, we'll give you a call. Well, I heard that line before. I knew that the only way to get a job is to be self-assertive, so I called him the next day. He said, well, we haven't reviewed everything, we're making a choice. I hung up, I called him the next day. I called him three days in a row. Finally, the fourth day, I went over there. And I leaned over the desk and said, listen, look, I needed a job at this point. And I turned to him and I said, I will do a better job than any of these applicants. I'll really do you a good job. I'll work hard. I'll be here on time. I've got a good resume. I'll do a good job for you. The guy said, you're hired. Now, if I were to go in there and say, well, you know, I don't know if I'm all that good and I have a lot of sins. doubt that I would get the job. Now, that's not bad and God doesn't, ill esteem, that kind of activity of being confident that you can do something well in this world, the point is that to enter the kingdom of God, there must be a humility and a recognition of need in order to come to Jesus Christ. That's why he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it literally means blessed are the poverty stricken in spirit. In classical Greek, it describes a person who would be totally degraded with his face down hand covering his face, and one hand out. He was too ashamed to look at people. That's the word Jesus used when He said, blessed are the poverty-stricken in spirit. It's not referring to a person who's down on himself, who says, you know, I can't do anything right, can't tie my shoe, can't sing, can't walk. I'm no value to anyone. That is not humility. That's just sickness. That's not well-adjustment. That's false humility, and that's really pride. But being poor in spirit means that literally I see my sinful condition in the presence of God. It's the best and only definition of it. I see my sinful condition in the presence of a holy, spotless God. And when I see my sinful condition, I don't say, I think I'm okay, God. I think I can stand the test. No, it makes me bow my knee and say, woe is me. The story that comes to my mind is Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And I saw these dazzling angels in robes. And the dazzling glory of the Lord and the posts of the temple were shaking because of the sound of the music of the angels. And when I saw all of this, Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. He didn't raise Himself up and say, I'm self-confident. I'm assured that I'm good the way I am. I do my best in life. I am a good person. And through self-help, I'll be better. He said, I am poor in spirit, actually. Woe is me. I am undone. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. You see, the presence of God strips away all facades. When you see your sinful condition in the presence of God, you are naked and open before God. You can do nothing but see that spiritually I'm poverty stricken. Therefore, I need a Savior. That's why Peter knew that his message had to include the very first step step—a personal conviction of personal sin. Because unless you realize that you're a sinner, there will be no conversion. You'll never say, Jesus, I need you. Come and be my Savior. So the first step to the kingdom of God, is a step of bending low. If you've ever ever been on a trip with us to um, Israel, one of the very few, in fact, I think the only church that we visit is a church in Bethlehem. The church of the Nativity is built during the time of Constantine's mother who came over. and had. It's it's an old church. And as you walk in the front door, you'd think that the people back then were three feet tall because the opening of the door is about three and a half, four feet high. It's very tiny. You couldn't fit through it just by walking through. You'd hit your head. And it was done for two reasons. Number one, to keep animals out of the worship service in ancient days when they didn't have swinging doors. And also so that when a person enters the church, they would bow. They would bend low and be reminded of their humility upon entering. The only way you enter the kingdom of God is bending low and realizing that apart from Jesus Christ, there's nothing good in me. And it's absolutely ridiculous to think any of us could stand before God and take out a list of all the good things for which God should accept us. There has never been a Christian who hasn't been poor in spirit. To be a Christian, you must be poor in spirit. It's the first step. That's why Jesus began His Beatitudes that way. You see, there's always two sides to the Gospel. There first must be an emptying before there's a filling. There first must be a negative confession before there's a positive confession. The negative confession is, I am a sinner. The positive is, I've given my life to Jesus. Now I'm in Christ and I'm saved. But there's always that rooting out before there's the building up. Conviction precedes conversion. Let's go on and look in the um, same verse. That the second thing that Peter brings out in sharing the gospel is not only their guilt for their own sins, but the blindness of their own hearts. For he says, Now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You killed the prince of life. You are guilty for your sins. But brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. That is, you really didn't believe that this was the Messiah. If you believed it was the Messiah, you never would have done it. Jesus on the cross, as He hung there, said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They really don't realize who I am. In Ephesians, Paul said, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardening of their hearts. In Corinthians he said, None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in another place he said, Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the covenant of the Old Testament is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. There's a blindness that is on the hearts of people who don't know the Lord, and often it's because of ignorance. Ignorance is pervasive in America. We tend to think that, well, you know, America's already received the gospel. We've already evangelized all Americans, and the job's all done. Therefore, forget America and go to other parts of the world. You're mistaken if you believe that. There are some people who out and out reject the gospel, but there are many more who are ignorant of the gospel. They really haven't heard the real gospel. How many of you, even who were religious before, were ignorant of the true gospel? That you must be born again and have a personal relationship with a living Jesus who would forgive your sin. You didn't even realize that existed. That wasn't an option to you. I grew up religious and I never heard those terms. I never heard the Gospel preached to me until I was 18. And I had television and I had radio and I lived a normal American life, I suppose, like anyone else. But I was ignorant in my heart and my heart was darkened. It says in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus came for the recovery of sight to the blind. And there's a lot of blindness in our country. Cultural and religious. And people suppose, well, you're in America. You're a Christian. How is it when you share the Gospel with people and you tell them about Jesus? They usually have an excuse, don't they? How many times have you heard from people, I'm already a Christian. Which means, I'm born in America. My daddy raised me in a church. I believe God exists somewhere in the cosmos. Whatever excuse they have, they are ignorant that they don't know Jesus. And when you preach the biblical revelatory gospel to that individual, they are often shocked. I didn't know I was in there. I don't nobody ever told me that. Person came up to me and said, I'm not a born again type. I'm not into that. I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. I said, have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, of course. I said, you must have skipped a chapter. Let me read it to you. Now, it doesn't say skip said. It says, Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The guy said, let me see that. He never knew it was there. Blindness of the hearts and ignorance. And Peter affirms that they were guilty and they were ignorant. Now, notice that Peter offers a solution to their guilt and to their ignorance. He draws a black picture. You're guilty, you killed Jesus, you're ignorant, your hearts are darkened. Now, here's the solution to it. As he says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. He tells him to repent. In other words, just because you're ignorant... Doesn't let you off the hook. Because you still have guilt because of your sins. You see, he had just explained to them their guilt. He had just explained to them their blindness. And once the gospel has been explained, in other words, you are a sinner, you need a savior, that person is responsible. You have shared that that person has a need. If that person receives it or rejects it, it's that person's responsibility. That's why He immediately turns and says, now, here's the solution, repent, turn, be converted, that your sins will be blotted out, that times of refreshing will come. That is the solution to your blindness and to your guilt. In Acts chapter 17, now I want you to listen carefully. Because although there was ignorance, Jesus holds people responsible. Once they've heard the Gospel... To either accept or reject and their eternity will depend upon that. Listen as I read Acts chapter 17. It says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, God overlooked ignorance. But now that Jesus has come, He has been God's final testimony to the world. God commands all people everywhere to repent. And so Peter sums up his message by saying, first of all, there is repentance. And then he shares the result of repentance. And then finally he shares with them the result of refusing that repentance. He shares the whole enchilada with them. Sometimes I think we're guilty of giving um, half the side of the coin. We hold up the gospel like, we hold up this nickel and we say, here's the gospel right here. You gotta do this. That's all. That's the whole gospel. And we forget to flip the coin. And the gospel is like a coin. On one side of it is the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And the other side is the wrath and the judgment of God if a person rejects the first side. And that's the whole enchilada. That's the whole gospel. There's the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of an Almighty God who sent Jesus to die for people. If a person says, forget it. Don't want it. Get out of my hair. God will say, fine. I wanted to be your Savior, but now I'll be your judge. First of all, He says, repent therefore and be converted. The Greek word for that is metanoia, which simply means to turn, to change direction, and to have a new direction for your life. Let me go back to what Jesus said. You recall He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. you remember the second beatitude? Blessed are those who what? Mourn. It's the second one. Poverty stricken in spirit. I realize my condition before God and I need a Savior. Second, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Now it refers to spiritual mourning, just as poor in spirit refer- refers to a Poverty stricken of a spiritual condition. It means that once I recognize that I'm a sinner before God, I mourn over my condition. I repent of my condition. I seek to turn from what I know displeases God and follow Him completely. And in a few verses, Jesus describes that whole process inwardly in the heart and in the mind of repentance. You're poor in spirit. You mourn, you're meek, you hunger and thirst after righteousness. A total turning around from sin and a turning to God. Spiritual mourning. Let me give you an example of it. I'm going to read out of Luke chapter 18 for just a moment. And listen to this story. He spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Remember how we said there is no person in the kingdom of God who isn't poor in spirit? Another way of putting that is a person who's self-righteous. A person who says, I don't need to get any closer to God. I'm holy enough. Bug off. He spoke this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, notice, with himself. Not to God, with himself. No doubt he probably prayed this prayer out loud. God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, poor in spirit. But he beat his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul said, Godly sorrow produces repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. When my father-in-law became a Christian, He read the New Testament. He was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. The man was an atheist. At that moment, he turned his life to Jesus after reading the Gospels. He calls my wife, who was not my wife at that time. Calls Lenny on the phone and tells her about Jesus. After a few days, she decides to make some kind of a commitment to Jesus because she reads four spiritual laws. And she kind of misinterpreted the booklet because she saw Self on the throne, remember the little picture? Self is on the throne and life falls apart. Jesus is on the throne and everything's just great. So she says, great, Jesus will come into my life and I can have everything I want. And so she said, okay, go for it. I mean, come into my life and all that stuff and now I want all the good stuff. As days turned into weeks, turned into months, I think, she went home or to her father's house in Southern California She was at a church service one Sunday morning and during the whole service there was this deep unsettled feeling as if something isn't right and she started crying a little bit. She felt unsatisfied, unfulfilled. Didn't sound much like a Christian, did it? At the end of the service, the pastor who was presiding over that, Chuck Smith, said, now if there are any people who, if you've heard Chuck, that's how he sounds, would like to meet Jesus and all. (laughs) Come up after the service, you know. And so she came up. And in the prayer room was an individual named Malcolm and she was saying, I don't know what it is. I did what I was supposed to do. I read this booklet. They said pray and ask Jesus to come in. I did. I'm unsatisfied. I'm unfulfilled. Something's missing. And he said, Have you ever repented He said, what's that? And he explained repentance to her. Recognition of I am a sinner, I need a Savior. I turn my life over to Jesus because I need to be freed from my sins which have separated me and my God. And you come to Jesus with humility. Like that old song that says, nothing In my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. She said, no, I've never done that. And Malcolm said, let's do it today. And there was that awareness and the bearing witness in her heart that this is it. Poor in spirit, mourning the production of meekness by the Spirit of God, a hunger and thirst after righteousness. But it all begins by repentance. And so he says, repent. Why? Because it's the keynote in the New Testament. What was John the Baptist's first message he ever preached? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was the first message that Jesus preached? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He stole John the Baptist's sermon notes, as it were. Same message, all the way through. And to repent means I change my mind about who Jesus is. He's not a nice guy. He's not a religious figure. He's a Savior. I'm a sinner. I need Him. Now, all of these elements should be included when we share the Gospel with someone. We shouldn't come in like a bulldozer necessarily, but in the course of the conversation is we're sharing with that person. Stay on target. Let the person know that Jesus came because He loved them to save them from their sin. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son as a Savior for them. And that the first step to God is that you admit that you're a sinner. You bow low. You mourn over that condition and you turn to God. The keynote theme of the New Testament is change through repentance. If that's true, then why is repentance so seldom preached in churches across the world today? Especially in this country. Repentance is a message that is not heralded often. Three reasons that Chuck Colson brings out. First of all, is that in modern evangelism, we're more concerned with enlistment, not repentance. Numbers of people who attend the meetings rather than genuine repentance. Well, how many people you got going there now? Well, who cares? question is how many have repented and turned to Jesus? But we're so concerned about enlistment that repentance is second, second chair. Another reason is that people don't accept the reality of personal sin. Oh, I'm not a sinner. I mean, now, that criminal who got convicted for that crime, now, he really needs Jesus. I mean, after all, he's a sinner. He's corrupt. But you wouldn't compare me with him, would you? I'm better than he is. It's always easy to find someone better than yourself. So there is really a lack of understanding that I personally am a sinner who need Jesus. And there's a third reason. Third reason is that it is an unpopular message. It's threatening. It's uncomfortable. It makes people squirm when they hear the word repent. They don't like the word sin. They prefer hang up. They don't like repent. They like adjustment. It's a very threatening message. And many people from pulpits are afraid that if you preach repentance, those people aren't going to come back. It's too uncomfortable. And for a middle class congregation... It's just not the right mix of words. But Jesus said, unless a man is born again, unless there is repentance, that person will not see the kingdom of God. But let's look at the positive side. Remember Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, they shall be what? Comforted. And that's what Paul means when he says, repent therefore and be converted. Notice that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This now is the result of repentance. What happens when you bow low? What happens when that person comes to know Jesus? First of all, their sins are blotted out. And then finally, times of restoration come. Remember this psalm, Psalm 32? David said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. You can react to spiritual bankruptcy by saying, I'm as good as anybody else. Or you can say, I need a Savior. And if you mourn in that capacity, your sins will be blotted out. You'll be forgiven and you'll be comforted. Corey ten Boom, who was in concentration camps in World War II for hiding Jews, finally went back to Germany to preach a message of forgiveness. Now imagine, here's a lady who's been in Germany in the concentration camps by the Nazis. She was a Christian during that time, and she goes back to Germany to tell the German people of God's forgiveness. And in one of her messages, she said, When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest oceans, gone forever. Then God places a sign that says, No fishing allowed. It's done. It's passed away. Your sins are wiped out completely clean. And then there's the time of refreshing. Remember how you felt when you finally turned your life over to Jesus? It was like, oh, man, talk about peace. Talk about a weight being lifted. Times of refreshing shall come. And what's the result of rejecting that repentance? Did you notice that verse that we skipped over or read through quickly? In verse 22, Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you will hear in all things, whatever he says. And it will come to pass that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people, the penalty of rejecting a promise, always two sides of the coin. You know, I noticed that we often quote the scripture out of Jeremiah that says, come now, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. But the next verse says, if you rebel and reject, you'll be cut off from the land. If you refuse and you do not obey, God will cut you off. That's part and parcel of the same promise, two sides of the coin. There was once a kid who was on the street in New York and he was kind of a country bumpkin. He'd never been to the big city before and he's cruising through town and he starts to walk across the street not realizing that this truck is going pretty fast. They don't want to stop for pedestrians out there. And a man saw him and grabbed him by the shoulders and around the neck and pulled him back onto the sidewalk. He's an elderly gentleman. And the kid looked at him and said, Thank you. Boy, you saved my life. The older man said, "You better I sure did. You better watch where you're going. As the kid continued in the city, he got into trouble. Got in trouble with the law. And one day he found himself in a courtroom for a crime that he did indeed commit. And the judge sentenced him. He put his gavel down and he gave him a pretty stiff sentence and a fine. And just then the judge said, you know, I think I remember you. Weren't you the kid on the uh, the other day on the street that I pulled out of the street when the truck was coming? And the kid said, Yeah, that's right. You, you're the guy that saved me. Right, save me now. You did it once before, do it again. Do something for me. And the judge said, I was your savior then, now I'm your judge. Can't do anything. I was your savior then, now I'm your judge. God sent Jesus to be people's savior. But if you reject and refuse, He will be your judge. You've given Him no alternative. You've said, I don't need a Savior. I don't want a Savior. God says, alright, there's only one other alternative. I have to be your judge. And when we share the Gospel with people, they need to know, Jesus loves you. He'll be your Savior. You need a Savior. But He'll be your judge if you reject Him. There was a guy who would drive by a Shell gas station every day to and from work. And the Shell station had a big Shell lit up. And it said, Shell, open 24 hours. And one day the S was burned out. <laughs> it said, Hell, open 24 hours. And he thought, yep, that's true. Never closes. It's always open. God didn't make it for man to inhabit. He made it for the devil and his angels. But it's always open. And if a person doesn't want to go to heaven, God won't force him to go. God sent Jesus so that a person could escape hell, but he won't force a person. Here's Peter, a fisherman, who's become now a fisher of men, clearly, distinctly sharing the gospel message. I want to close with a parable. It came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, and year after year, those who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish and how they might go fishing, the plea that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they did not do, they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staffs and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, and to decide what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, and expensive training centers were built whose original primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training... Many were graduated and giving fishing licenses. They were sent to full-time fishing, some to distant waters, which were filled with fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. Like the fishermen back home, they engaged in all kinds of other occupations. After one stirring meeting on the necessity for fishing, one young fellow left the meeting and went fishing. The next day he reported that he caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch and scheduled to visit all the big meetings possible to tell how he did it. So he stopped his fishing in order to have time to tell about the experience of other fishermen. Now it is true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and bore the smell of dead fish day after day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of the fishermen's club. And in fact, they claimed to be fishermen, yet they never fished. They wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend the weekly meetings and talk about fishing. After all, were they not following the master who said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Point's obvious. We're called to fish. Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus said, You're going to catch men. And Peter did it. Peter failed. Peter was impetuous. Peter said stupid things. But eventually... We read tonight, filled with the Spirit, He was on target. He did it. Again, I think of the Nike commercial. Just do it. Great message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've called us. You've equipped us. We need nothing more. We pray tonight, Father, for those in our midst, those fish in our midst. Who need to be caught. Who don't know the extent with which you love them. Who have never experienced repentance. Never experienced spiritual poverty and mourning for their sin. Have never come to Jesus because He's a Savior who saves from their sin. Have never felt the warmth of forgiveness, the joy of salvation. Little religious experience have dotted their earthly walk, but they really don't know the person of Jesus walking with them, fulfilling them, living inside of them. Something that Jesus himself called being born again. Lord, tonight, would you just catch those fish who need to be lovingly caught in your net?